officials say this season has already brought some of the most dramatic wildfires Canadians have ever seen. Late afternoon, a fire that has been burning for a few days suddenly and dramatically grew. It was whipped up by strong gusts of wind. The fire jumped the river and we had basically two minutes to get home, grab our stuff and we had to leave. They didn't even let us take our things and when we asked them. So we lost everything now. We all have what we have on our backs. More than 800 people of Fort Chippewan, north of Fort McMurray, were forced from their homes. I did get emotional, you know, thinking, you know, God, please make sure our community is safe. All the social justice and housing and gun violence or race issues or all of that is under the umbrella of like, if we're on fire, we cannot deal with that stuff. Welcome to the fourth season of Courage Incorporated. Join me as we hear courageous and powerful voices from the world of business and policy who have the incredible task of directing the future with courage. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. In 2023, more than 15 million hectares of forest burned in fire in Canada. The world has become combustible in new and terrifying ways. Climate change accounts for many of the new and novel ways that humans are confronting fire. Our guest today is author and journalist John Valiant, and he is here with us to talk about his recent book, Fire Weather, and to help us learn more about what is contributing to a century of fire. John, welcome to Courage Incorporated. Now, John, I know that you've spent years researching and preparing and ultimately writing the book Fire Weather. Can you just help us understand how you decided that this was going to be the story that you wanted to tell and how you then proceeded to educate and inform yourself around the issues in order to create the book? So, Duncan, I was uh, made the mistake of, of looking at Twitter on May 3rd, 2016, and along with all the other stuff that goes scrolling past, were these extraordinary images of Fort McMurray. Extraordinary because you couldn't see Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray had disappeared under a fire cloud that I eventually learned had punctured the stratosphere. A a pyrocumulonimbus fire cloud, the kind that comes out of volcanoes, that generates its own hail, that generates its own lightning, that generates its own weather. So that was pretty shocking to see that coming out of this petroleum hub, Uh, you know, a very wealthy, um, well-equipped town with with excellent infrastructure to see it being overwhelmed by fire. So so there was that there was that first visual. And then there was what's going on with the people. Where are they? We saw cars streaming out. Nobody knew, I don't know if you remember this, for days, nobody knew what was really going on under there. Who was left behind? And so, you know, I'm from Vancouver, and maybe I have all my feelings about Alberta and about the petroleum industry, but I was afraid for the people under that cloud. I was afraid because they were Canadians. I was afraid because they were human beings. I was afraid because I knew their whole families under there. And... So that really caught my attention. And I think a lot of Canadians felt that fear, not just because my kid works there, but just because this is happening in our country to our 
uh, national neighbors. And that's really upsetting to see. You know, like you, my father-in-law was working up in Fort McMurray and had been, you know, driving a, a truck since he was 16 and in his 70s was driving a, a sanitation truck up in Fort McMurray because it was a good paying job and it was a skill set that he had. And so he lived there and that's what he did. To your point, he, like tens of thousands of other people, was trapped in an environment where they couldn't go south, they couldn't go north. And the classic story of why didn't we build another road in and out of the place? Well, we'll get to it when we have time and we never had time. But for a shift in wind uh, that ultimately allowed people to get out of there, a real tragedy could have taken place, as you've talked about it. I mean, brother-in-law hopped in his truck in Edmonton, loaded up the back of it with water and sandwiches, and was just started driving north to see if there were people coming through on the road that um, needed help, needed assistance, needed support while he was trying to find his dad, which he eventually did. And the cell phone signals collapsed under the pressure of people trying to communicate. And you're right. It was an absolutely horrifying time. And then the wind shifted and the people got out and the town got rebuilt. And the lessons we might have learned from Fort McMurray, we didn't. And now we sit here today with more fire than we've ever had before in our history in our country. And this whole notion of fire culture and how we think about it and how it's both enabled us and is harming us, how you see that issue and what you think we need to do about it. Fort McMurray, you know, was a wake up. Uh, and, and the, I could see that, I think, because I'd been on the climate file for a while and had a dim awareness of, you know, how Slave Lake burned in 2011 and how the uh, Okanagan Park fire in 2003, you know, those were really shocking, persistent, hot, destructive fires. And I think we, we were still able to think, oh, these are, these are anomalies. These are exceptions. You know, it was really hot. It was really dry. And as I started looking into the particulars around Fort McMurray, um, the miraculous escape, uh, for one thing, I mean, to, to get 90,000 people out of a burning city without leaving a single person behind is, you know, probably one of the greatest achievements any local society has ever uh, performed. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, and they need to be studied more closely. closely. Something very special happened there. And, you know, can't, we didn't just dodge a bullet. We dodged a whole fusillade of bullets. We could have had hundreds of people, if not more, dead or injured. And, you know, it would, we'd be talking about it in a completely different way now. And the country would be scarred in a way that it isn't now. Uh, but instead of thinking, okay, we, we finessed that one. We got lucky. Let's go do the same thing we did uh, before. Um, one reason I wrote Fireweather is let's stop for a minute and really look at what happened. And, and one of the things that happened, we have to look at the relative humidity. And that sounds like a dry, uh, no pun intended subject, but it was 11% the day Fort McMurray burned. And you have to go to Death Valley in July to find 11% humidity. So it was as dry as a California desert in the boreal forest. And it was 33 degrees Celsius. So what's going on? And what that does and what's happened, we're seeing this all over the world now. We're crossing these thresholds these thermal thresholds, these humidity thresholds. And when you cross those, 
things happen that we've never seen before. This is a new world. And I coined this term 21st century fire and 21st century fire has a number of characteristics. And one of them, two of them are, it burns hotter and faster than people have previously experienced. And that's what everybody says. You've talked to people in Lahaina, in Paradise, California, in Fort McMurray, in Enterprise Northwest Territories and Lytton, BC. No one could believe, like there was a cloud on the horizon. We all saw it. And then suddenly I'm running for my life. And that's, it's, it's gradually and then suddenly. And that is the story of climate change too. We saw this coming in the fifties. There were climate science scientists in the fifties, some of whom worked for petroleum companies in the sixties and seventies did pioneering climate work. Some of the best climate science of the seventies and early eighties was done by petroleum company scientists. And they saw this coming and it was gradual then. And now we're in this period of extraordinary acceleration and we're really, we're being overtaken. And yet, uh, you know, one, one of the strangest lessons I learned from this book, Duncan, is people's allegiance to the status quo knows no bounds. We will blinker ourselves and pretzel ourselves in extraordinary ways in order to keep doing that thing we used to do that gave us some sense of comfort and stability. Fort McMurray is now effectively rebuilt doing the same thing that uh, it did before. And John, how do we, because what you're describing in some respects is almost sort of another evolution of humankind, fundamentally. We have the very personal dynamic. I like living where I live. I like the infrastructure I have around me. You've talked about seeing family by getting on a plane the opportunity to have excellent healthcare because we go to a great hospital with wonderful technology, all of which has been enabled by, constructed by, and deployed by people that are burning fossil fuels throughout that entire process. And so as we think about a reimagining of our allegiance and a reimagining of how we live, I mean, what are your thoughts about how we as people just have to think and start acting differently? How do citizens have to coalesce together to start to drive for some of the change you're describing? It's this is where, you know, I'm, there's a lot of frightening things in fire weather and, and things that are depressing and things that are frankly now inevitable. They're baked in. But I'm really quite optimistic about what we're capable of. And I think a historical perspective, you know, I, ret- I retreat to history when I'm overwhelmed by the present. I retreat to history uh, because I get to see these other cataclysms that we survive, see these incredible changes that we've you know, been able to negotiate our way through. So the petroleum industry, it's, you know, five generations old. It's normal to us. We don't know anything different. So it's our status quo. But really, it's an experiment. And we, it started in 1860. I call it the Petrocene age. It's peaking right now. We're now in transition. Uh, and even if we don't move into renewables, nature is going to shut us down. It doesn't matter who who makes the choice? It's going to happen. You know, we're, re, we're, we're at peak oil effectively in this decade. So that's fine. Um, we could have done it sooner, um, but there was too much. We were having too good a time. You know, too much money was being made by two powerful people. It's, it's, it's estimated that it's basically the top 10% of society that bears responsibility for the CO2 overload that our atmosphere has right now. You know, it's a very rarefied group. Most inhabitants of the world 
while they benefit indirectly from petroleum products, um, are not actively exacerbating the situation in the way that Canadians do, for example. Um, so when you look at the fact that the petroleum industry is only 150 years old, and then you look at the arc of our civilization, and when you, and when you look at and how successful we've been, not for centuries, for millennia, we've had these you know, beautiful cities and effective governments. And we've also had people who knew how to take care of the earth. You know, we're, we can rattle off on both hands all the ways that we violated it and exploited it, but we would not be here to, today if there weren't members of our society and our civilization who knew how to nurture the earth and understood what it needed so that we could grow plants and grow food and have plants the next year and have clean water the next year. We're good we, we are capable of being good husbands and wives of the earth. We can do that. Petroleum has allowed us to distance ourselves from that and create this illusion of separateness from nature. You know, we're able to heat our houses in these powerful ways and drive in these powerful machines through all weathers as if it didn't matter. Just put on snow tires, go a little slower, but I've got my quad track, you know, anti-skid, whatever, and I can just go barreling up to Whistler any old time I want. Well, so that that creates a dangerous illusion of separateness. Um, and we need to bravely dismantle those barriers and remember and really rejoice in the fact that we are creatures of the earth and tied to its fate. And now, you know, our behaviors and appetites are actually determining its fate. Well, the, the behaviors and appetites of the wealthiest 10% of the 8 billion souls on earth today are determining its fate. We have to, to re-examine that. And I, and I fully believe we can have these beautiful, empowered lives and enjoy wealth in many different forms without fossil fuels. All the fires and melting and flooding that we're experiencing now are worse because of decisions made in the 70s and 80s that are now, you know, that are being perpetuated now by uh, partisan politics. And so, uh, but there's this other path for us and many people are on it. Many people are already examining it. When, when you look at adoption of rooftop solar in certain cities, when you look at how Paris, you know, a crowded traffic choked city is transforming you know, this is one of the major cultural hubs on planet Earth is changing almost overnight into a uh, two-wheeled, two-footed, transit-friendly city. It's a huge city. So these are, there are these choices we can make that are incredibly positive and, and actually not that hard to do. And so a lot of it is just getting people to overcome, and that's where policy can push people uh, to overcome getting out of the rut that they're in. You know, so much of it is just, well, I'm used to doing this and it feels a little bit uncomfortable to change, but actually it's a really good change. A really good change in Vancouver is when we started putting food waste in with yard trimmings. It changed garbage culture. And there's a lot less going into landfills now and a lot more going into compostable, reusable. That's, that's a way that we can be good husbands and wives to the earth. You know, it's interesting when you talk about 
how we learn about how we live on the earth. And I think about your first book that I read, The, the Golden Spruce, and about the Haida Gwaii culture. And it reminded me of some previous guests we've had on Courage Incorporated who are First Nations talking about when the original Europeans arrived and how we, we as Europeans and descendants of Europeans learned from First Nations how to live in this world, the foods to grow, the way to enrich the soil, the way to create a, a habitable existence and one in which we could share the land. And the whole notion now of indigenous reconciliation that we're talking about, which is again coming back to the original commitments of how are we going to share the land. As, as, I, as I listen to you, you're really saying across the globe, it's about how do we share the planet in a responsible and responsive way. And, and this is, you know, really the flaw and, and the immaturity of capitalism, you know, that, that you have this you have this right to take from a cookie jar that really isn't yours. And then you have a right to expand your appetite and expand um, that exploitation infinitely. These are beliefs and behaviors that are not anchored in reality. And it's only because the planet is so huge and we're so small that we've been able to do this for several generations. But Alexander Mackenzie in 1799 reported a take of 106,000 beaver pelts out of Western Canada. That's not sustainable. Anybody knows that. Anybody knows that. And that this was after all the beavers had been wiped out in Britain and the rest of Europe. There used to be beavers there. They're starting the, the first baby beaver in, uh, the UK was born in 400 years, was born last week, the first one in 400 years. So when we did that here too, we, the beavers were wiped out. And then what you do is you just go on to the next thing. Gujao, you know, I think the president of the Haida Council, uh, you know, said that to me. He said, basically, they, they wipe out one thing and they, they just, you know, commodify another. And, and now, you know, we're commodifying space and the moon and, and, and various things, but it's, um, there are limits and, and there's this strange and very childish resistance to those limits. And what if we tried to live within them? And what if we saw them rather than as impositions to my ambition as guardrails that actually keep us safe and enable us to carry on in ways that our children can enjoy? and that our grandchildren can enjoy. We sort of lost the plot uh, with capitalism. And uh, it's such an interesting and compelling mechanism. And I saw real similarities between the way that wildfire that went through Fort McMurray behaves and the way a very successful business behaves. It wants to expand. It wants to grow. It wants to be bigger. And there's something about the physics and chemistry of planet Earth that encourages that kind of behavior. And we're part of that. And so that's one of the things I wanted to explore in fire weather is what is that strange kinship uh, that we feel with oxidation, you know, with, with fire, with combustion, with growth, uh, with consumption? It comes naturally to us. I mean, there, there was in the, in the evolution of all of us, the challenges of our environment in front of us, and yet the needs we had and we've found ways to creatively manage one to get to the other. And I think we're now, if, if we take the analogy of fire, I mean, fire ultimately is suppressed through a combination of nature and humanity working together as opposed to working at opposites to one another. 
And so this is, I think, really what you're saying to all of us. The call to action is how do we as people appreciate how we are contributing to our own demise and how do we responsibly and responsibly work with each other and the world on which we live to come up with a better way to live without surrendering many of the advances and uh, benefits of the society that we've created over centuries, to your point. The, uh, the new CEO of, of Shell said it himself. He said, it would be dangerous and irresponsible to reduce petroleum production. And there's, uh, there are these other ways through that are being demonstrated and uh, that are proven. And so this collaborative and broad-based uh, reassessment and reconnection with what uh, nature is capable of and with what humans are capable of is, uh, is the path forward. And a really good example, I think, of what, of what you were suggesting, Duncan, is uh, this reinvigoration of indigenous burning practices where, you know, at a certain time, you know, in the very early spring, you do these low level burnings when the, when the ground is still somewhat damp, but you, you know, you get rid of a lot of the, the undergrowth and kind of tidy things up. You know, people talk about this, this pristine wilderness that early colonists encountered. It, it wasn't pristine. It was, it was manicured. It was manicured by millennia of indigenous burning practices and you can actually see dendrochronologists have actually been able to track when smallpox went through southern BC through the tree rings of the fire of, of old trees, because you can see when the regular small burns stopped. And it meant the people who were lighting those fires were gone. They had died of smallpox. That cycle was broken. That tradition was lost. What's amazing is that we still have in our communities. First Nations people who have a direct lineage to those beautiful practices. And people, uh, fire scientists, firefighters, uh, people in those communities where regular fire is, is a part of life are revisiting that and, and re-educating themselves. And, and, you know, it's really like these old songs that we used to sing that we almost forgot, but, you know, they're grandmother knows them or, you know, granddad is still humming them. And those are actually really good tunes for us to know. Well, and it's also the, the nature of the, the, the tree stock itself and how much deciduous versus coniferous trees you have and, and how much water they retain. There's, there's, there's so much about the whole notion of our, our natural space that we all want to have around us. And I, I and my family live very close to Stanley Park to, to the point of a, a beautiful natural area that we richly enjoy and are intensely proud of. And again, don't want it to be turned into through uh, a lack of appreciation of how the climate has changed. The, the catalyst of mass fire, mass damage, mass destruction. I mean, again, these all become the very real and important choices and, and obligations that we have and that we have to deal with. John, you, you have, in your literary career, been very thoughtful about the, the causes, the topics, what you write about, and write about it in a way that is compelling and it sort of captures and invites the reader to, to educate themselves. As you've, as you've now written this book and you've now gone through this journey yourself, how do you see this journey continuing for you? Well, 
people often make the mistake of, of asking a writer who's just published a book, so what's next? Which I advise everybody not to do. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, unless you're a mystery writer writing a series, but um, you know, each book for me is sui generis. You know, it's a whole new thing. It's a whole, you know, I, it's a whole new set of um, themes and, and ideas that I have to, to master. And, and but this one really feels different to me, Duncan. Uh, this is happening right now. I, it feels incredibly urgent to me. Um, I'm I'm you know proud proud of this book, uh, but it, I, I also feel urgency around it. And and I wrote it as much to, you know, educate and I suppose entertain, but it's also a PSA. It really is a public service announcement. And so I'm here now with you today, but also for the foreseeable future in service of this book, in service of what uh, it contains, because it affects all of us now. You know, these fires are not, they're not restricted by region anymore. And I, I was just in Kingston, Ontario, and boy, was it dry. Boy, is it dry back there. I think they finally got some rain, but you could see it and feel it, uh, just how dry it was and how hot it was. And again, think about Fort McMurray. You, you drop the humidity a little bit, you raise the temperature a little bit, and that creates a space for fire that didn't exist before. And the fire burning in that space is going to burn differently. And, and, and by differently, I mean more intensely and faster. Kingston could have a fire like Halifax had, like Enterprise. I mean, Enterprise, Northwest Territories is practically in the Arctic. It was, a, it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so 37 Celsius in Norman Wells this summer. Inconceivable. That's an inconceivable temperature for the Arctic Circle. And yet here we are. And so fire is going to do different things and burn in different ways. And so a lot of this is, is quite soluble, even, even as we're going to have to be building for this new world and preparing for more fire and for a lot of species loss. Uh, I think there's a way to nurture what remains and also restore a lot of what's been damaged. And, you know, the, the Earth's default mode is to grow and flourish. That's the default mode. When you get out of the way, things prosper. When you stop shooting tigers, they multiply like cats, as long as there's a prey base. Uh, And when you stop cutting trees down, things grow back. It may not be the trees you were cutting down, but something will grow there. People would ask me three or four years ago, so, you know, what are you doing? What are you working on? I said, well, I'm the most boring man in the world. I'm working on the same thing I was working on three years before that. And, you know, it took me seven years to write this book. Well, I'm going to become a different kind of most boring man in the world. I'm, I'm going to keep talking about fire uh, until, until we get the message. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for taking the time today to have the conversation about all of this. It is an incredibly profound and important conversation for all of us as people to have. And I applaud you for your courage and a taking on the project and then writing the book that you did and now actually saying you know i'm i'm here not just to have written a story i'm here to keep engaging with and telling and uh, advocating that people take on this story and really reflect on it in their own lives and their own choices that they make and that all of us collectively need to do the same so again thank you for the the work and, and thank you for the opportunity to talk with you about it 
Duncan, I'm so glad to make your acquaintance uh, here in the second dimension and um, really, uh, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for your time today and the insights you shared. John Valiant is the author of Fireweather. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This podcast is a production of the Walrus Lab. Thanks to our producer, Camille Hemming, and our teams here at Deloitte. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and tune in again soon to meet our next Courageous Leader.